Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 602 of the Survival Podcast. It's February 9th, 2011. It is a Wednesday, and we have a great show today. I have Stuart Rhodes waiting on the line, the founder of Oath Keepers. You can find out more about them at OathKeepers.org. And Stuart will be on in just a minute to tell you all about Oath Keepers and the work that they're doing to help guard our liberty and freedom. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, uh, the, the Berkey guy at Directive21.com. You know what, folks? When it comes to survival, there's one need that is more important than any other need that there is out there, and that's water. Followed closely by food, but we can go a few days without food. You cannot go a few days without water. A few days without water, and you're dead. That's why it's one of the very first things you need to square away with your prepping and your planning. The best way I know to do that, the most economical way I know to make the water you're drinking today and the water we may have to drink tomorrow safe to drink economically for the long haul is the Berkey water filtration system. We have a filter system there that will last for up to 6,000 gallons of water. You buy a couple of those and put them in reserve, and you can literally put away a decade's worth of drinking water redundancy very affordably, very efficiently, once and done. And then you can use that system to make that water that comes out of our faucets safe to drink by getting things out of it like chlorine and fluoride that I don't believe belongs in our water. Next up today is ShelfReliance.com. Shelf Reliance, and I noticed I said shelf, not self, but Shelf Reliance. Like you put stuff on. They are the makers of some of the most innovative food storage products available today, from large rack systems like the Harvest Series uh, down to simple systems like the Pantry and the Cupboard Series. Uh, there are solutions for every need out there. What the Shelf Reliance system does is allow you to practice a very effective version of eat what you store and store what you eat. As you bring new canned goods into your home, you put them in the top part of the shelf, you pull the ones you're going to use out of the bottom, you take an inventory each week or each month when you go to shop and restock, you restock what you've used, and whatever you're using today is always the thing that was brought into the house the longest period of time ago. Automatic food rotation, very efficient spatial storage, and uh, some of the most rugged systems I've ever seen built. Uh, I've, I've seen people say, hey, I could build a shelf for a lot less money than that. Not something that's going to hold three quarters of a ton worth of food in that small form factor that something like the Harvest 72 will. So check out Shelf Reliance and also check out their extensive line of long-term food storage products from Thrive. That's the Thrive brand of long-term food storage. They have a really great selection there as well. Remember, both sponsors uh, have a special offer for MSB members. You get from some free sport bottles uh, from the Berkey guy with any of your orders there. And uh, Shelf Reliance will provide you with uh, 10% off all shelving and 5% off all Thrive food storage items uh, just by using the codes that are available in your, uh, your, your MSB account. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts, you get ebooks, you get all kinds of great stuff. 
And I have a big announcement today to go along with the MSB. In addition to the discounts like the ones I just talked about, I'm bringing on a new supporter of the Member Support Brigade today. That's Seed Savers Exchange. I've been working on this one a while. Uh, what I've got for you out of those guys is $10 off your first year of membership. Uh, by this afternoon, uh, that offer code will be uh, in the back office of your Member Support Brigade. So Seed Savers Exchange, is it, again, that was something I had to work a long time to do. Um, it took a little bit of uh, politicking to get it done. But I really believe in the work they're doing to help preserve our heirloom seeds, and I think we need to be a part of that. Uh, becoming a member is $40 a year. When you do that, uh, that, that contribution does a lot to help preserve these, you know, there's over 13,000 varieties of seeds that they're working with. Uh, but it also gives you a slew of benefits. Well, I've got that knocked down to 30 bucks for you for a year. Again, that discount code will be available in your member support brigade uh, later this afternoon. And with that, we've got the housekeeping wrapped up. And as I said, uh, we're fortunate to have Stuart Rhodes of uh, Oath Keepers with us today. Stuart, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Um, you know, I have talked quite a bit about Oath Keepers to the audience in the past, especially uh, members of law enforcement, firefighters, military, and prior service military. But there's probably a lot of people listening to the show, get new listeners every day, that may not be familiar with Oath Keepers at all. So could you kind of just give us the mile-high view uh, starting out? Who is Oath Keepers? Why did you start it? And what's your, what's your primary mission? Well, Oath Keepers is an association of current serving and, and former military police and first responders, such as firefighters. And the main mission of Oath Keepers is to remind all of us who swore an oath, whether we're current serving or not, of our obligations under the oath we all took to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that's the main mission of Oath Keepers. And the reason why I started it is I saw a very dangerous uh, trend in our country towards a subversion of our Constitution and uh, kind of flipping on, on, on its head at the founders' design. So now we have top-down government uh, power being drawn to Washington, D.C., and in particular, the formation of NORTHCOM, um, for the first time in our history, a, a command, a military command for deployment of troops here domestically. And along with that, the erosion and the protection of the Bill of Rights and the claims that the president can you know, apply the laws of war here inside the United States equally as though we were all Iraqis or Afghanis. That's been the legal claim uh, from the Bush administration and also through the Obama administration that they could do the same to us as they would do to a foreign enemy in time of war. And, I mean, I think that's an important thing you just brought up here because I think right now in the current political climate, if you say anything anti-government, well, obviously it's because you're against uh, President Obama. And your organization started when President Bush was still president, and well, I think we, like we started. That's not quite true. We started in uh, spring of 2009. Okay, but I have been a very outspoken critic of, of the unconstitutional behavior of the Bush administration, and so my motivation. Uh, I got the idea for Oath Keepers at the tail end of the 2008 presidential campaign, and so I planned to start it regardless of who's going to be president: McCain, Obama. Even back then, we didn't know it would be Hillary. Uh, it didn't matter to me. I'd already seen this this process. Um, when I was a student at Yale Law School, I graduated there in 2004. And this is, you know, I was in class when 9-11 hit. And so the aftermath after 9-11, we saw a lot of things done in the name of security, which were very destructive of our constitutional design. And chief among them was the claim power of the president. This is what was claimed under the Bush administration, the claim power of the president to detain even American citizens 
as unlawful enemy combatants. Military attention, uh, no right to an indictment, no right to a jury trial, none of those things. And this was the claim, you know, relentlessly pushed uh, during the Bush administration, but then also carried over into the Obama administration. That's what really opened my eyes when I researched that issue. And my research um, on that issue at Yale Law School won their award for best paper on the Bill of Rights. Um, so, so these are the you know things that concern me, seeing the pattern of, of the creation of the legal infrastructure to bypass the, the, the Constitution and bypass the Bill of Rights. And I was very much alarmed about that during the Bush years. Um, and so that's why I started Oath Keepers. Not because Obama was elected, but because he simply carried forward the same, the same uh, argument. I think we're in big agreement. What I've always said is that people get all upset if they happen to be a Democrat when a Republican president does something. Or they get all upset because they happen to be a, a, a Democrat and a Republican president does something, or vice versa. But it's not about what initial the person has. It's about allowing anyone to have a power that is greater than the power that was, was deemed appropriate in our founding document, the Constitution of the United States of America. And that's why you guys say you're nonpartisan, because your loyalty to me seems to be what it's supposed to be for all of us. And I know you, you've served, and you've taken that oath, and I have as well. The, the first line of that oath is an oath to the Constitution. It's not to any man or person or office, but to the foundation of the nation and the people behind that document as well, the American people. That's right. I mean, the, the, the Constitution, this is why the founders uh, put the oath requirement in Article 6 of the Constitution itself, because they were breaking tradition. Before that, the oath was to the king and, and to the queen and her progeny. It was always to a person or an office, uh, historically. And they broke with that tradition, because in our country, the sovereign is the people themselves. And it's the people who enact the Constitution, which is the highest law of the land. That's why the oath is to that highest law, which is the expression of the people's will of how best to secure their, their natural rights. As our definition of independence makes clear, it's the whole point of government, and government only has power given to it by the consent of the people to fulfill those ends. And so that's why the oath is it's no accident. That's why the oath is to the Constitution itself, not to simply obey a person. Um, unfortunately, we've lost sight of that, of that insight and in the genius of the founders, and you have people now, like especially now during the, the Obama administration, if you dare to you know, criticize anything he does, or if I dare to talk to police officers, you know, the, the response I get from leftists now is, well, they should just do what the president says. You know, we elected him. He's the leader, you know, as though it's an elected, you know, dictatorship. That once he's elected, he can do whatever he wants and he must obey. That's not how it's supposed to work because he only has authority pursuant to the Constitution. He has no authority outside of it. So if he gives an order that's out of his just authority under the Constitution, then that order is null and void. The same as though it seems with the congressional law, which is null and void from inception if it's contrary to the Constitution. And so when he speaks and, and gives an order that's outside of his powers and uh, as under, under the uh, Article 2 of the Constitution, um, what he's really doing is stepping outside of his office and, and speaking as a private individual. He deserves no more deference or obedience than you or I if we just start talking to somebody. I completely agree. And you said something in there that I want to, I want to kind of back you up and have you explain a little bit deeper because I think it is one of the most misunderstood or simply not known things about the Constitution. I consider myself a student of the Constitution, and until I found Oath Keepers, I guess it was close to two years ago now, um, I didn't even realize that this was the case. 
you said Article 6 of the Constitution actually doesn't just specify that the oath is taken to the Constitution as the people is sovereign, but actually requires it. The, the, these oaths that we take as a soldier is not just something somebody thought was a good idea. That oath is the law of the land, correct? That's right. The, Article 6 of the Constitution requires that all officers at every level of government, both federal and state, must swear an oath to support the Constitution. So it, it's in the Constitution itself. It's a requirement of the Constitution. It's a legal requirement. So that's why you can't just say, well, you know, it's a tradition or some kind of a good idea we just do. It's a requirement. So I can read it to you. It says here, uh, the senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of the civil state legislatures and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, should be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. It's the requirement, and that's why, you know, especially when it comes to military officers. Um, in fact, military officers have a different, different oath than enlisted. The military officer's oath is unqualified. It's, it simply says, I will support and defend the Constitution the best of my, and, and perform the duties of my post the best of my abilities. It says nothing in there about obeying uh, the commands of superior officers or the president. The enlisted oath is a little bit different, as you noted earlier. It, it says I will defend the Constitution, and it also says I will obey the the, um, the orders of the president and officers appointed over me pursuant to the UCMJ. And so, you know, we've had people throw that in our faces and say, well, see, it says there we have to obey the president. Well, only only his lawful orders, though. That's been very well understood in the military context. You know, as the, as the Nazis found out at Nuremberg, just following orders is no defense. They must be lawful orders. And, you know, we were kind of talking a little bit before we got into today's episode, and up until now, you guys have really been focused in uh, a way of, of getting in touch with all the active duty and people currently serving, and you're still going to do that, but you're making a bigger push toward folks like me now that, that, that served at one time and are retired or prior service, right? Yeah, so we've always, we've always told veterans they have responsibilities under their own oath. But we've been, you know, primary focus as far as, you know, the, the, most of our effort has been on getting the current serving to wake up and realize their responsibilities. And what we tell them is, is simply, look, you know, stand down. If you're given orders to violate the rights of fellow citizens, um, you know, God forbid they're given orders, for example, to suppress a peaceful protest, as we saw recently it was done, done in Egypt. If they're given orders like that or if orders to fire on Americans, we hope they would simply stand down. Now, sometimes I get criticism about that. People say, well, wait a minute. You know, what are you going to do? You're telling us what you're not going to do. What are you going to do? And I even have folks who will write in and say, well, the current serving, you know, when, when are they going to march on Washington, D.C. and clean out that nest of vipers, you know? And my response to them is it's not the military's job. You know, if you look in our Constitution, you know, who is responsible for correcting errors? You know, what institution in Article 1, Section 8, for example, is discussed, was contemplated, um, repelling invasions, executing laws of the Union, or, or uh, suppressing insurrections, not the standing army. Um, it's the militia. And so I tell folks, it's your responsibility. not the military's job to fix things. Because in the and words of Jefferson, the militia is the whole of the people. Right. Well, I mean, the, the founders, they wanted us to be our own guardians. I mean, the reason why people are so fixated on what's the military going to do and when's the military going to fix our problems is because we've let that institution of the state militias atrophy. That was supposed to be the military force in the country. 
especially for domestic internal uh, stability and defense and security. It was supposed to be us. That was, their, that was the founders' answer to that ancient question of who shall guard the guardians. They intended us to be our own guardians. That's why it says in the Second Amendment that a militia is necessary to the security of a free state. It's necessary. You can't really be secure while also being free unless you and your neighbors, all of us, take our responsibilities very seriously of being our own military force inside the United States. But we've let that atrophy and die away. And so in its place, we have, you know, the residue of it is the National Guard. But where are they at? They're now deployed overseas. You know, most of them are in Afghanistan or Iraq. So it creates a power vacuum here at home. And what the federal government has told us is, well, we're going to fill that vacuum with FEMA, and we're going to fill it with NORTHCOM. And now they have the 1st Combat Brigade, the 3rd ID, attached to NORTHCOM for domestic use. So they're taking the founder's design and flipped it on its head. Instead of it being you know, the military power being primarily in the people themselves, in their own internal security in their state, and also within the United States, they've left us with, you know, we no longer beat militias. We no longer muster and train among our neighbors. Um, we're not formed into units. We're not well-equipped or well-trained. And so we're reliant on them. And so they've, you know, kind of gutted this, the strength of the people and the strength of the states. And in its place, they've given us a top-down structure. And so people who are looking for answers, looking for the silver bullet to fix our problems, tend to focus on that power structure. That the all eyes turn towards Washington, D.C. and national elections. They all turn towards, well, who's president? Who's in charge? Or they turn towards, well, who, you know, what's the military going to do? And when are they going to fix things? And that's a mistake because a military coup in this country would be as destructive as any president claiming to be, you know, El Presidente for life. It's the two twin evils that have destroyed republics since ancient Rome has been a false choice between a despot who, who gathers more power to himself or to get rid of him, you turn to the generals and they come into the military coup but guess, guess who becomes the despot then? The general does. So that's the, those are the twin evils we must watch, watch out for and be wary of. So what we have to do as a people is get back to the founder's ideal of us focusing on our states and focusing on our local communities. They intended that the states would be the focus of resistance against federal abuse, not the military. And, I mean, I've seen some overlap, and I know one of the people that's really involved with what you're doing is Sheriff Mack, and that one of the places that, that that boundary can be drawn, that line in the sand can be drawn at the local level is with the sheriff. Um, and, I mean, I've heard it said, I believe on your side, that the, the highest form of law enforcement in the land is the sheriff. I mean, is that well, the he's case? The, he's, the highest, he's the highest elected official in the county, and for, for you know, highest uh, law enforcement officer in the county is your elected sheriff, and for good reason, because then you, the people, choose your sheriff, and he's answerable to you. And it's a very serious problem when you have people coming in who are not answerable to you. And we saw this during Katrina, where you had uh, federalized police officers, like, say, California Highway Patrol, for example, who were brought into New Orleans who, who didn't know the people, were not answerable to them, were not under the command of their sheriff. Um, in fact, it was a high patrolman from California who tackled the old lady in her kitchen that we all saw on national television and disarmed her of her little revolver she had for self-defense. And so this is the kind of abuse you get when you have outsiders coming into your county. So that's why it's, it's really important for us to stand up 
and say, well, you know, the person who who should be you know in command and taking care of things in our county should be our sheriff elected by us, and outsiders shouldn't be coming in unless they notify him and he cooperates with them. And as an oath sworn officer, he has an obligation, as do all of us, frankly, um, to stand up when there's being when there's, when there's a violation of the Constitution and someone is overstepping their jurisdiction. He has an obligation there to stand up and defend the reserved powers of the states. It's not that he's higher than a federal law enforcement officer. It's not that. There's two different uh, sovereignties. There's state sovereignty, and then there's a federal sovereignty. And fed- the federal government only has sovereignty or powers in the enumerated, you know, very few and defined enumerated powers given to it by the Constitution. And as the Tenth Amendment makes very clear, all other powers are reserved to the states or to the people. And so it's that separation, that line of demarcation that a sheriff has to defend, as well as the governor or the legislature of the state or the uh, courts of the state. They should all be defending that line of separation of powers between the states and the national government. I mean, what and what can people do to, to I mean, because here's the problem. I, I agree with everything that you're saying. I mean, 100% of the way. And I'm a huge advocate of state rights. But we have a federal government that 80 to 90% of what they do, to me, they have no constitutional authority to be doing today. They, they, they've gone past that line at every opportunity possible to a point where there's things that they've been doing for 100 years now. That if you look at the Constitution, nowhere does it say that this is a federal jurisdiction. How do we start to move that backwards? How do we start to roll those things back? What are what are the steps the average person can take to make that happen? Well, I think I think our best uh, tutorial on that is what Jefferson and Madison both did in resistance to the Alien and Sedition Acts at their time. And here, I mean, this is like 1798. You had. Um, the Alien Sedition Acts, which were a direct violation of the First Amendment. They were jailing newspaper editors who were critical of the president. It was John Adams at the time. And Jefferson and Madison, they didn't, you know, go file a court case in federal court. They didn't ask a federal judiciary, which they would not have done, to stop this. Instead, they went to their state legislature. Legislature of Virginia, that was Madison's, and legislature of Kentucky, that was written by, by, uh, by Jefferson. So you have the Declaration of Independence author, Jefferson, and you had James Madison, who was, who was considered the father of the Constitution, both giving us a very, you know, very clear um, step-by-step tutorial on what must be done. They wrote these resolutions declaring that any act of Congress contrary to the Constitution is null and void from inception. And further, that the states, state legislatures, have a responsibility to declare such actions to be null and void and to interdict and interpose themselves between the federal government and their own people. So the first step is your state legislature should stand up and declare such actions to be null and void. And that is starting to happen now. We see more and more state resolutions on sovereignty, more declarations that if the federal government does X, Y, or Z, the state will consider that a breach of the compact um, by which the state joined the union. For example, here in Montana, where I live now, um, when the Heller decision was, was being considered by the Supreme Court, that's the, the gun rights decision, um, the Montana legislature uh, drafted a resolution that said, if the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution to only protect a collective right to bear arms rather than an individual right, that Montana would consider that a breach of the compact. 
because they will have, you know, the the Montana people, people of Montana, enter the union under under the understanding of the Constitution as it was back then, and they're going to rewrite it to mean something totally different and something something very different from what they agreed to, then they'll consider that a breach of the, of the contract, and they have the you know the right to all the remedies of breach of contract, and one of those remedies is that the contract's now destroyed and you go back to the condition you were in prior to the contract. So in this case, it'd be going back to being an independent sovereign state. So that was kind of the shot across the bow from Montana to the Supreme Court, saying, hey, don't think you can just do whatever you want. If you do this and you, you, and you gut the Second Amendment and turn it into something that, that never was never intended to be, um, only protecting a collective right, then you will have destroyed the Union, and you'll have left us outside of the union by destroying it. So that was kind of a message there. It's uh, it's it's that's it, a serious situation. I think a lot of people are uh, real big on yeah, we should just do this. And I think what I hear you saying is more along the lines of, of working within the the the, pub, the republic that's supposed to be here. The way that we we had these tutorials laid down, as you said, by Jefferson and Madison, that it's not just a, a willy-nilly thing. I mean, when you have a state saying to the federal government, if you cross this line, you're breaching your contract with us that makes us part of the union, I mean, what we're talking about is, at some point, secession. Well, I mean, I think uh, Dan Itza, the, the legislator from New Hampshire, who kind of you know was a leader in all this, I think he had it right when he said that we're not really talking about secession. What you're talking about is that the federal government has destroyed the union. You're not leaving it. It's been destroyed. They are wiping it out. It's a different posture, and I think a much stronger Very interesting. In other words, we're not dissolving. Right. You have dissolved. You are. Right. We're trying to put it back right. together, but this part that you think is part of it isn't, and we're not going to do this. And I guess my question then right. is, because I've seen a lot of these resolutions come from a lot of states, a lot of them may have a lot of common sense behind them. How does the state put teeth into that? What you know? What can they do without saying, "Okay, we've taken this this complete outside uh, lock"? How can they actually enforce their own resolutions? Well, one thing they can do is once they've once they've declared, say, say the Obamacare bill, which several states are now drafting legislation uh, to declare that null and void. What they would do is first refuse to comply, refuse to go along with or assist in the enforcement of it. That's the first step. And if the federal government has to send agents in to do all the little dirty work and and all the investigations and all the enforcement themselves, that really saps their resources. So that's one step they can take. But the next step would be you could have state criminal sanctions against its enforcement. Um, and so that would, you know, for example... So you'd make it illegal for a federal agent to come in and enforce this unconstitutional law. Right. So, I mean, Montana has a bill right now called Sheriff's First. It's kind of interesting. Um, it's got a few flaws, but the spirit of it is simply that, look, if the feds come in and try to enforce unconstitutional laws, uh, the sheriff has the authority under state statute to interdict and arrest and... and uh, and charge them under state statute with violation of the rights of the citizenry. So there's, that's, that's one method that, that, court, that uh, state legislatures could use. Now, some folks will say, well, look, the sheriff already had the responsibility. Well, that's certainly true. Um, but it's much better for him to have the backup of the state legislature and the governor sitting there in state statute 
it's a much stronger posture for him rather than one lone sheriff trying to do this. It's the entire state behind him. And that's a much, that's a whole different kettle of fish. And I guess if he has, if he has a federal federal agency then come after the sheriff, the sheriff can stand on legal grounds of, I took these actions because my state legislature hereby empowered me to and declared that I, you know, that it actually required me to. Exactly. So you have so you have a battle of two sovereigns. Now you have the government of, government of your state standing in between the people of the state and the federal government, not just the sheriff. And so it's the entire state versus Washington D.C. And if enough states do that, um, the likelihood is is that Washington will blink, and they won't want to, you know, go down the road of trying to use force. But then the other, but the other side of the equation is, is that if we can reach enough of the current serving to understand, that's why we look at our Declaration of Ten Orders. One of them is, is we will not invade a state that asserts its sovereignty. And what that simply says is that look, there has to be, and there is, a limit to what the federal government can and cannot do under the Constitution. And if they interpret their own powers and elect to, to do that with no consequences, you know, as, as you said earlier, they have interpreted their powers to be unlimited. Well, the states have to stand up now and follow Jefferson and Madison's lead in their example and start saying, no, we are not going to recognize um, your you know, absurd interpretation of your own powers. We are going to say that we think what you're doing is unconstitutional and as officers who are also sworn to defend the Constitution, you know, we in the legislature and the governor's office and all of our state law enforcement are going to um, stand in the way between you, the federal government, and enforcing unconstitutional laws against the people. And so that's what has to happen. So that's where I think the, the focus should be for people. But here's another thing I want to talk about is that um, aside from the, the legal questions and the you know, doctrines of resistance and nullification by states, other big factors are going to be that, you know, as I said earlier, we have allowed um, our, our core institutions to atrophy. Because we no longer have a militia, an actual militia, I'm talking, I don't mean uh, private militia, just a bunch of guys getting together as friends. I'm talking about, you know, a county militia. It used to be in this country you had a county militia established by your county government and under command of officers that were elected or appointed pursuant to regulations established by your county or by the state. And that was part of the structure of, of the entire state militia under command of the governor. So that's what we need to get back to. If we can revitalize that institution, now we will not be in a position of weakness. Because here's the one big problem we have is that we're heading for an economic collapse. Um, I'm sure you've been talking about this with your... I, I've been talking about months, it hugely, so. and I'm glad you brought it up, Stuart, because one, and every time I start to look at states asserting their rights, my biggest... The biggest thing you know that I'm afraid that the federal government is going to use against the states right now is the fact that at least 38 of them are a hair's breadth from bankruptcy. And technically, they are bankrupt. If they were anything other than a state, they would be bankrupt. And how does a bankrupt state stand up against a bankrupt federal government when even though the federal government's bankrupt, they still control all the money? And I just see this tremendous financial squeeze play being made here. And I see everybody like us, regular people, being the ones that get hurt the worst in this. And then all of these concerns that we have for, you know, excessive power coming up in the no good crisis goes to waste mentality and more totalitarianism and more oppression than at any time in history. Right. I think we should just uh, accept the reality that the 
end of the Ponzi scheme is coming for the fiat currency. And I think it's, you know, the power elites of the world have already accepted that reality and they're already telling us what they're going to do next. Their plan for, when the Fed fails, their plan for us is to give us a worldwide version of the Fed. And so you, that's where you see the United Nations calling for uh, a world currency and you see the chairman of, of the IMF, of the International Monetary Fund, um, arguing that the special drawing rights from the IMF should be used as an interim world currency on the way to a more formal world currency. And so they're already planning for the demise of the dollar. They're going to dump the dollar as the world currency of exchange, and they're going to try to impose upon us a, a worldwide version of the Fed. And so if we just sit here and wait for this to crumble, this fiat system to crumble on top of us, um, we can't fool ourselves into thinking we're going to be able to you know, climb out of the rubble like the, you know, the, the lone alpha male survivalist coming out of the rubble and then rebuild because they've already got an infrastructure. They're ready to lay the foundation, the next foundation of the top of us. And so we have to do is get I think that, yeah, the, the, the collapse is part of the plan. So if we see the collapse as a solution, we're just pawns in the game because they're already, they already know what they're going to replace the current system with. That's what you're saying. Well, yeah, it, it's, it can, it could be, it'll go to their advantage if we don't do anything. If we just sit here and wait for it to happen, then yeah. But what we have to do is, you know, any kind of crisis is a two is an open window that goes both ways. If we get out from under that fiat structure they put over the top of us, and we go and we revitalize the foundation that the founders gave us, you know, sound money in the states, states using gold and silver for, for to pay their debts, um, an actual state militia. If we revitalize those institutions that we've let atrophy, then we will not be weak and we'll be in a position of strength. So, because here's the, where we are right now. We're so weak as a people that if an economic collapse hits right now, most Americans have at most like a week's worth of food in their house. Um, they don't have their own security squared away. They don't have their own financial security. They don't have gold and silver in their pockets. They don't have their own food. They don't have food storage or food stores. Um, so they're very weak. And under those circumstances, the people of this country will be desperate and hungry and more likely to accept you know, that FEMA card as the new currency that they're going to give us or whatever else they had planned for us. And the other part of this is that the military and police are much more likely to go along with emergency provisions and, and declarations of martial law and other illegitimate claims of power. They'll go along with it if they think it's a real emergency. More of them will say yes to that. And so we have to, as a people, before it hits, as much as possible, resurrect and strengthen those fundamental institutions. you got to have food. you got to have physical security. That'd be your posse behind your sheriff and your county militia, you know, police and military aspects. We have to have those things revitalized. You must have some kind of sound money, some kind of gold or silver-backed currency or gold and silver themselves so that you can go beyond barter. You have to have these things. And so, you know, we just did a, a big meeting in Montana uh, last month where Oath Keepers sponsored a meeting of all the different liberty groups in Montana. And we also had about 20... Um, current state legislators who came. And the four big planks we focused on were revitalization of the militia. Um, and also, of course, while you're doing that, while you're trying to revitalize the militia in your county, you should also be working to enact neighborhood watches and mutual aid associations so you're not relying on government action. In case that fails, you still already have something to fall back on for security. We focused on physical security. That's the militia and the posse and neighborhood watches. We focus on economic security, and that includes, you know, gold and silver and gold and silver-backed currencies and alternate currencies and state banks and other ideas of how the states can get out from underneath the Federal Reserve. 
Um, and then the third plank was food security, you know, food and other essential supplies and things like emergency sanitation and water purification and communication is also a very, very important aspect. Especially if they try to shut down the Internet, you want to have an alternate source of, of uh, communication. And then the fourth aspect was state sovereignty and defending those reserve powers. So those, that was a big thrust of it. And that's pretty much what we have to do as people. We have to you know, revitalize those institutions and take personal responsibility for all of those fundamentals of life. And, and that's what the founders intended. But their model for, their ideal for us was sovereign farmers who grew their own food and were independent on their own land and who didn't answer to anyone except their neighbors. Most of the things that affected you were settled at the county level between you and your neighbors deciding, you know, what do you do if someone's cow gets out and tramples uh, the next guy's cornfield? You know, how do you settle these disputes? That was handled by you and your neighbors at the county level. And the state only handled things that were statewide or defense of the state against invasion, for example. And then the same idea was, was expanded out to the national government. They should only be responsible for things that, that involve, you know, like say interstate commerce between the states and negotiations with foreign, with foreign uh, governments and foreign trade. That's what they told us we were getting when Madison and Phyllis 45 described the powers of the new government. He said that they few and few and few and defined and concerned mostly with foreign affairs and commerce between the states and with foreign governments and with Indian tribes, leaving the states to handle most of the other things, most of the uh, day-to-day affairs that concern the lives, liberty, and property of the people would be handled at the state level. And so what we have to do is get back to that idea. And don't wait for Washington, D.C. to do it. We should take personal responsibility for providing for our own families, making sure we got food stored up. It used to be during the Cold War, this country had enough grain to feed all of its people for three years in the event of a nuclear winter. Um, now they have enough to feed all of us half a loaf of bread. That's it. And so, you know, they've abdicated their responsibility. The federal government has dropped the ball. But really the founders intended for us, as the people ourselves, down in our local towns and counties to handle that kind of stuff. And so we had to get back to that and start taking care of ourselves and preparing along, I think, those, those four core areas are where, where our focus should be getting it ready. Um, you certainly pay attention to what they do in Washington, D.C., oppose what they do that's wrong, uh, speak out against it, but we need to focus on our states and our local communities and on those vital necessities of life. I completely agree, and I see so much synergy between what you're doing and what we're doing with the Survival Podcast in our community here, food storage being one of the huge ones. If you can feed yourself tomorrow, you have hope for tomorrow. When you can't feed yourself or your children, you lose hope, and when you lose hope, that's when you start making deals with the devil. That's when you start groveling. That's when you'll do whatever is necessary to make sure that your child doesn't go hungry tomorrow. Um, so, we, you know, we have kind of a, a, a stated goal here for people to get to a one-year food supply. And it seems like a lot, but if you really think about it, it's not its not really that much. I mean, it, volume-wise it is, but from a standpoint of living through the type of changes that we may be about to go through, and we can look at Egypt. And we can see, to me, that's a very small version of what could go on here. Much smaller nation, much less people, people that are already dealing with far less than we are accustomed to having here today. And in this country today, we're spoiled rotten as far as I'm concerned, as far as as luxuries. 
And what I saw in, I, agree, I, agree, I agree with that. You know, and what I saw in Egypt that I don't see being talked about is people doing some of the things you're saying. Um, there are people that have put together basically neighborhood posses in, in, uh, in Egypt that are policing their own streets right now and preventing the riots from spilling over into the neighborhoods. Of course, they don't tell us that. They don't want us to, re you know, to understand that the individual really has always been the person with the power. But, but one of the things that's really hit me here is you're talking about revamping you know, the, the militias at like a county level. How does a person go about doing that? Because I've said for years we well, need that, and I just don't know how do we organize. You're not talking about Joe calling himself Colonel and deciding he runs the local militia, getting five of his beer-drinking buddies together, putting on some camo, and running around playing war games. You're talking about a legitimate, established structure that is part of local government, but in the hands of the people, right? Right. I mean, I don't, I don't fault the people who have done, you know, private militias. I understand their motivation for doing so. I mean, I want to be clear, nor do I. I think it's great right. that they're doing what they're doing, but I'm saying that we need this this um, traditional constitutional-style militia as well. Well, when you do it, as Dr. Evan Vieira has pointed out in many essays he's written in his book, he has a book out called um, Constitutional Homeland Security, The Nation in Arms. It's all about the militia. And as he points out, it's, it's much better for you to have a government body um, it's kind of like a volunteer fire department. It's set by volunteers. You don't get paid, but it's it's been enacted by county by the county commissioners through a county ordinance. And so you can say, hey, I've got sovereign immunity. We do as a militia. We're part of a government institution, not just a private bunch of guys getting together in a private association. That same same as with we were talking about earlier about the sheriff. It's good for the sheriff to have the backup of the of the state behind him. Well, it's better for your militia to be enacted pursuant to your county commissioners, your county legislature. So you can also take advantage of the fact that you're now talking about a sovereign entity. You're talking about a government entity. And even better than that would be a state statute that that, that um, constitutes a militia and trains and organizes it and, and decides how they are going to um, elect or appoint the officers over the militia and establish a command structure. Because now you're part of the state. So once again, you're, you're dealing with a with a, um, a confrontation between, you know, two sovereigns. But even more important than that, there's another element to the militia that folks kind of overlook. A lot of people tend to focus on, well, the militia is there as the last check against federal tyranny, and that's certainly true. But the other important function is that when you have an organized militia that's part of your state and county governments, and you're well established, and you've got almost everybody in your county is able-bodied in the militia, you have now filled that vacuum of power that we have in America. You're now no longer weak. You can take care of your own local security. You don't need outside help. You're not vulnerable. You don't need FEMA to come in and Northcom and the 82nd Airborne like happened in Katrina and, you know, and Blackwater. You don't and need and I'd like help. you to talk about that. What, what would have been the difference if there had been a well-organized militia uh, in New Orleans it was able to yeah get out of the way while the, the storm raged and batten down the hatches, but then come back in and establish order instead of letting that vacuum fill up. And how much of the abuses could have been avoided with neighbor protecting neighbor? Well, you know that's the, that's the inside of the founders. You cannot abuse a people by using them to abuse themselves. 
the militia. Because they won't do it. Force. You know, you, know, you, you say, go, go, go burn your neighbor's house. No, it's next to my house. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I'm not, or go seize your neighbor's property or whatever it would be. Um, the more local, the more the people come from your own community, the better. It's better to have sheriff deputies, for example, who live there than it is to have nationalized police from someplace else in the country. Like bringing New York cops down into Katrina, who, you know, one example I heard about was two New York police officers were brought to Katrina, and because in New York no one can have a gun, they were, you know, going through in traffic stops and, and traffic uh, direction. If they saw a gun, they'd flip out and try to disarm the, the driver. And thankfully, a local deputy showed up and said, hey, you know, it's okay down here. This is this, It's not illegal to have a gun here. You know, this is in a rural part of of, uh, of New Orleans, of Louisiana. So, you know, so it's better to have local control. And so, yes, if you and your neighbors are your own security, you're the posse the sheriff calls up rather than a professional SWAT team. Um, you're the military force that's called up by the governor to take care of looters and stop looting. If that's being done by you as the people yourselves, then you can't be tyrannized. You can't be abused. You're, you know, it's much less likely you're going to violate your own rights and the rights of your neighbors than it is for some, you know, standing army guy or Blackwater contractor or some federalized cop from New York City or Los Angeles. That's much more likely to be uh, an environment for abuse. And, and, I mean, everything I'm hearing from you is, is a perfect example of why I've wanted to have you on the show for a while and why I've been supporting Oath Keepers for as long as I've known about you guys, because these are the types of things that we talk about every day here. People standing up and taking individual responsibility for their own lives and their own actions. And it, it really does my heart good to hear you put so much of a focus on food storage uh, and having food, because without that, everything else sort of falls apart. And I think we've seen... You can't, you can't improvise. It's hard to improvise food. <laughs> yeah, you can't. No, you can't. It can improvise a weapon. But you cannot improvise food. And, I mean, I'm a big uh, supporter of the Second Amendment, obviously. But I've often said this. I have been in very few physical confrontations in, in, in my lifetime. And I hope to be in as few uh, as possible going forward. I'm prepared if it happens, but they're few and far between, thankfully. I have to feed myself, good or bad, rich or poor, uh, you know, tyranny or, or freedom, I have to feed myself every day. It's a constant, and we're all going to have to do that. So, have you, I mean, have you guys been advising then uh, when you do outreaches and things like that that people definitely look to storing food uh, as, as part of what they're doing for their own independence? Absolutely. Like, like uh, one aspect is going to be we're about ready to launch um, a veterans initiative, and what we're going to do is speak to all the veterans in the country. And, and one aspect of that is is to encourage them in their own organizations, like DFW Halls or, or DAV or Marine Corps League, whatever it is, to you know set aside within their own within their own uh, chapter, set aside a space in their building, and, and why not have a room full of rice and beans? Let's let's start out with mutual aid among the members of of, uh, of that hall, you know. And then they can go out from there and provide for their families and, and their and their neighborhoods and communities. And they can be, you know, leadership. I mean, veterans, you know, I think for many good reasons are seen as as respected by their community and, and seen as, as leaders. And so they have to get, they have to take um, you know full responsibility for that position of leadership, and also for their own oaths. And so the way to do that 
is not just to go to the county commissioner and say, you know, please um, start a county food reserve. That'd be great. Uh, or just please go start a county militia. But the veterans have to take personal responsibility, even even while they're doing these things, to try to get the county commissioners to do what's right. They shouldn't put all their eggs in that one basket. While you're doing that, also go and start your own food reserve, your own grain reserve for your, your chapter, for your VFW hall, uh, for your neighborhood and for your town. You could, you know, if you get enough donations, which you probably could do easily, to, you know, fill a warehouse or, or fill a, um, a grain silo, and then you can turn to the county and say, look, you know, here it is. Here is our grain reserve. We did it ourselves through donations, and here it is. We'll take care of it, but just you know, county commissioners, that if the crap hits the fan, this will be the public food, you know, resource for our community. And so this is this is something you can do, even if the person's a total, you know, hardcore libertarian and doesn't even want to do state action of any kind. There's no nothing stops you from going out and doing this through volunteer association, you know, and mutual mutual self help and mutual help. And I want to kind of maybe come back to something we alluded to toward the beginning. You guys are making a bigger and bigger push toward the veteran, uh, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you want to talk about who best to, to put together a militia, people that understand organizational structure, command structure, constitutionality, uh, and everything it takes to make something like that flow uh, are the veterans. And, I, you know, I was on a, a, a radio show about, I'd say, six months ago, where we were actually ended up talking about Oath Keepers uh, briefly. And I was asked, well, doesn't your oath end when your service ends? You know, you no longer have to obey the orders of the President of the United States or an officer appointed over you because you're no longer a soldier. And I said, you know, my first oath, uh, first part of that oath was to the Constitution, and that, that oath ended with, so help me God. And just because I was handed a piece of paper that said I don't get paid anymore and I don't have to uh, follow uh, a protocol and go out and do PT every morning doesn't mean that when I take uh, something as solemn where I, I put my hand up and I say, so help me God, that that ever goes away. I think that is for law enforcement, for military, that we should, we should view that as an eternal oath. Uh, you're, not, you're not an ex-soldier. You're not a former soldier. You're prior service. And we still have that because we have something that was given to us. That we had to fight for it. We had to take it. Uh, I think it takes something to become a soldier and, and to make it through basic and, and your advanced training and, and, and to, to honorably serve. You've earned it but, it, but when you earn something, it also comes with a responsibility. And I think you're looking back to this community and saying, now, stand up, take that responsibility, and do something with it. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely correct. You know, I don't consider my oath to ever expire until I do. And that's, that's the way you know, all veterans that I know feel. Um, but we can't just, you know, say, well, my oath is fulfilled when I go vote or my oath is fulfilled when I tell the current serving, you know, don't violate the Constitution. We have to take personal responsibility. If we're going to actually um, support the Constitution, it's not just defending it, it's supporting it. And if we're going to support what the founders gave us, then we have to recognize our own, ne- our own uh, negligence and neglect in letting these institutions die. It's our own fault we no longer have a citizen's militia made up of ourselves and our neighbors. We no longer muster and train and, and organize. You know, we should be much like the Swiss. We should, you know, the, the backbone of the U.S. military should be us. That's how it's supposed to be. And so we have to take personal responsibility for our neglect and, and correct it. And so now it's time for veterans to, you know, you can't just get together and, and, and have beers and, and, and swap war stories. 
you know, frankly, your service is not ended. So that's how I look at it. I look at it as personal responsibility. And if we all understand that, and if you focus our energies, and so much, you know, so much going on, and people are, are you know, so anxious and worried, and there's, you know, being pulled in, in 100 different directions. But when it comes right down to it, if there's a hyperinflation or when there is, and your, your, your dollar no longer is good, what's going to count is whether you and your neighbors are squared away and have food storage, you know, have combo and a way to purify your water. In other words, a way to, to take personal control of those core necessities of life. If you've got that squared away, then we'll stay free. But if you don't, frankly, I think this country will fall. If, if, if us veterans don't make sure those institutions are revitalized and, and rebuilt, and, and you can tell, you know how you know what's right? You go look and see what Mark Potok of Southern Poverty Law Center does not want you to do. He does not want you to revitalize the militia. And even, even as a, a, a government body, he will oppose it. Like here in Montana, we, right now we've got a bill being sponsored by the legislature and the legislature to enact a state guard, a home guard for Montana, which would be a public institution staffed by volunteers. Um, and we're getting opposition from the Montana counterpart, Southern Poverty Law Center. There's a little branch here called the, I think it's Unbelievable. called the Montana Human Rights Network. But they're, but they're opposing this bill because yeah. they don't want that kind of power in the hands of the people. Which, which is insane it. because there's precedent for it because we have a state guard right here in the state of Texas. That's exactly what you've oh, described at the state level. Quite a few do. California's got one. But most of them are kind of, you know, they don't no longer, they no longer carry weapons. They're kind of, you know, kind of gutted. But, yeah, quite we a few. We do in Texas. <laughs> We do. Well, right. we'll get yeah, it. absolutely. And I mean, the Texas State Guard was used heavily during um, uh, the damage from Hurricane Rita. And then later with, uh, I guess it was Ivan, the one that hit uh, um, uh, Galveston. So, I mean, we've been talking about a lot of great stuff uh, today. And I guess a lot of people out there, though, uh, Stuart, are probably thinking, how does the person actually find the time to do all of these things? They, they, they feel like they're one person and they can only do so much. And we're all limited, and we're all restrained in certain ways. Uh, how, how do you answer that 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 question? Well, that's why you you focus on. We, we can only do so much. That's true. That's why you focus on the things that are going to be critical. Um, you've got to have food storage. You've got to have a way to, to protect yourself. Um, you should work with your neighbors and coordinate on both fronts. You can't just be, you know, island unto yourself. And, and you know, the idea. A lot of survivalists have this idea of being the gray man and hiding their preps. Uh, problem with that is they're so focused on, on saving themselves that they're not saving their country, and the two go together. So I really encourage people. You know, certainly, you know, if you've got, doesn't mean you can't practice, you know, opsec, but you should be organizing neighborhood watches, and you should be talking to your neighbors about, you know, what do we do when the power goes out? You know, and you can put it in the context of the next ice storm, like we're seeing right now in many parts of the country, or the next flood, or whatever it is, but you know, the more, or even just in crime, there's, there's an increase now in home invasions and an increase in crime because a lot of police departments are scaling back their, their staff. And you've got more desperate people out there in the streets. And so it's going to happen more and more. So in many ways, you know, just focus on, on the essentials of neighborhood watches, um, personal food storage, and then trying to encourage your neighbors to, to store food. And then, like I said, reaching out to the veterans. If we can really click the veterans on, well, that'll be the lead, and they'll, they'll, tip, they'll tip the rest of the community into getting ready. So but just focus on the things you can do. And, you know, and also when it comes to, 
Now, one of the criticisms I hear is, well, you know, we'll was flat run out of time. By the time you get a, a militia statute passed in your state and an actual state militia resurrected or even a real serious state guard, you know, by the time you do all these things, it might be too late. And that's certainly true. We don't know how much time we have left before the economy, you know, takes a, takes a serious collapse, nosedive. But if you start with yourself and your neighborhood and work out from there to your, your town, your county, and then up to your state, if you're working up those levels, um, then whatever happens, you'll be in a better position when it happens. If we have enough time, we'll, we'll go all the way to the state level with all of these preparations. Um, but if you run out of time and all you've done is squared away your, your neighborhood and your circle of family and friends, you're still better off than you were. So that's why I say, you know, focus on you. It's got to be kind of concentric rings out from you. You, your family, your circle of family and friends, your neighborhood, your town, your county. Work on those levels going out. And do it, um, look at it like two pillars. On one side, you've got public action, you know, your sheriff and your sheriff's having a posse that you belong to and your county commissioners, you know, enacting a committee of safety to, you know, to write the regulations for your state, for your, for your county militia. You know, uh, the, the county adopting a sound money program where they, ta- where they start to use you know, gold and silver as an alternate way of paying, I say paying your property taxes or, or payroll at your county level. You know, you can do all those things through the public institutions of your, of your town, county, and state governments. But while you're doing that, the second pillar is private action. So even if the politicians are too stupid to listen to you, and don't do it, you have also, as an individual, gotten your food storage, and you've started a neighborhood watch, and you've worked with your, you know, your local DFW hall to start, you know, squaring away communications and emergency supplies for the hall, et cetera. You do these things through private action as one pillar and public action as the other. And that way, no matter what happens, you're in a better position than you, than you are right now. You'll have improved your position. I think another thing is that never underestimate the power of small things and small actions and small successes because if we do get into a vacuum of either services or power or both, the communities that are doing things the right way, that have put the preemptive steps in place, will be emulated as long as there's some of them there. If there's none of them there, then we end up at the will of the totalitarianism, and that's that's where we end up, and there's nothing we can do about it. If we have some people stand up and demonstrate, yes, you can do these things, here's how, here's what we're doing, and people can see it work, then they get back the one thing that's like, in any of these disaster scenarios, whether they're local or regional, or if they're man-made or natural, doesn't matter. People will fight to keep what they have and to rebuild as long as they have one thing, and that is hope. The day they feel there is no hope, they'll sell out everything. And a lot of the things that you're talking about to me allow us in the darkest hours to demonstrate we do have hope. There is a solution. It's, and you're part of it. Now come on and help out. And let's, let's put this thing back together. Because if we don't stand up as a people and demonstrate a way forward, somebody else will. And I don't feel real comfortable with who is going to be doing that if it's not us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we don't, if we don't prepare for the crash and have um, in place what we want to see come afterwards, then what's imposed upon us is somebody else's vision, and they'll take advantage of our weakness. So that's absolutely correct. 
And what do you see happening? Earlier. What do you see happening? I want because I know people out there wondering. You know, what are, what is your view on this? You deal with this every day. What do you see the economic well, future being for the United States of America, regardless of what we do to fix it after it breaks? How do you see it breaking down? Well, I'm, I'm not an economist, but listening to economists who I do respect and people who are doing some pretty good analysis, um, like for example. Uh, John Williams of ShadowStats.com, who looks at, you know, the actual numbers that, you know, outside of the, the government cooking the books on unemployment and debt, he looks at the actual numbers, and his prognosis is that, you know, we could hit hyperinflation as early as six months from now to 18 months. That's kind of the window. He's, you know, no one really knows for sure. They've, they've been able to stretch it out for quite a long time. So they could go longer than that. Who knows? But he says that's that's a possibility. The possibility is we could hit hyperinflation, like the like the uh, like Argentina ex- experienced, or like Weimar Germany, or even as bad as Zimbabwe, you know, or or Bosnia during the war there. There was hyperinflation. We could hit hyperinflation like that in as early as six months from now. It's possible. So I think we should just accept that, you know, as with any other fiat currency in history, this one's going to go the same way. Eventually, we're going to see a collapse in the value of the dollar. The rest of the world is already decoupling from the dollar. We've got Russia and China now using the yuan whenever they exchange, whenever they trade with each other. Um, that's soon to be joined by the other BRIC nations, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. All of them will start uh, trading using some other currency, like most likely the yuan, rather than, rather than the dollar. So the world's going to dump the U.S. dollar as the currency of exchange. It's going to happen. We, we can already see it's being done right now. So we need to just, just face the music and realize that when that happens, the dollar is going to plummet in value. And to couple that with the outrageous amount of money they're just creating out of thin air to monetize the debt and prop up the bond market. So now you see that, you know, eventually this is going to, this is going to collapse. You've got more debt now that can ever be repaid, possibly. It can't be repaid. So the only choice really is hyperinflation, which is what they've chosen, or default. And so those are the only two choices. And so, you know, we should just accept that, you know, at some point it's going to collapse um, into hyperinflation, and which will mean that, you know, just like in Weimar, Germany, you know, the collapse there in the 20s, it'll take a wheelbarrow full of, of cash to buy a loaf of bread. You know, that's, that's the kind of inflation you get in the hyperinflation. So, so while I'm not an economist, I think that I am, I am pretty confident in saying that that's what's going to happen. And we are hearing from people within the, the government that, yes, the federal government does know that it's going to collapse, and they're getting ready for it. They're preparing for it. They're training the troops increasingly for domestic disturbance. Um, so, I mean, I've heard this from multiple sources. When you hear, from, you know, one little rumor or scuttlebutt from one source, particularly with a grain of salt, when you hear it coming from, you know, multiple different directions coming in towards you, that, they're get, that there's going to be economic collapse, the federal government is getting ready for it, but they're not telling the people. They're preparing themselves to maintain control of us, but they're not preparing us for it. Like I said earlier, you know, the, the current grain reserve is only enough to give you a half a loaf of bread. That's it. You know, so they're not, you know, gearing up to help the American people or prepare you to 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 get through this. What all they're really doing is focusing on crowd control. So what do you think a so minimum? Like, what do you think a minimum level? Of, uh, of, of let's let's start with one food preparedness is for the average American. How much food should they have? And I know obviously as much as possible, but you right. know what? How much is enough? Well, I always I always tell people you know I think the Mormon Church has a really good handle on this. We've been doing it so long, 
what they tell you is build a three three months reserve of your can and box goods that you use all the time. You know, this is stuff you you go and buy at the grocery store. Start there. Three months worth of that. You know, while you do that, I would also you know buy bags of rice and beans. Totally, very very cheap. You can buy like eight bags of rice for just a couple hundred bucks. And so now you've got you know several hundred pounds of rice, and then you go buy some beans and start there. Those are the easiest things to cook. You know, anyone, anyone can cook that, and then and then go from there to the you know the big Mormon four, you know honey, wheat, salt, and uh, what's the other one? Honey, wheat, salt, and I think powdered milk is their is their big Mormon four. Those are the basics, and then go from there. But you know, the goal should be as you said earlier. Really, your goal should be a year's worth of, of the basics. That's what we've always said: years a year. Sure, and and I would build up. Frankly, I would build up to six months worth of canned goods. You know, most canned goods are good at least a year. So why not build a six-month supply of cereals? I mean, we're already seeing price inflation in cereals and, and in other green foods. The so, inflation you know, there, that. inflation there is so misleading right now as well because we have inflation numbers in the range of 100 to 150 percent on some grains, but the consumer so far is only seeing 10, 15 percent at the level they're purchasing at because in this country we have this multi-tier distribution system. And we are able to get grain at the expense of other nations, but that's in the distribution system. That inflation is real. It's there. And it's going to fall out the other side. But right now with the economy uh, in retreat, so to speak, the, the retailers and the wholesalers have not been able to up their costs. So they're taking the loss right now. But we're going to pay for it sooner or later. It's going to come out the other side. Uh, there's no doubt about that whatsoever. So I think we're completely in sync there. Um, I also wanted to point well, something out. Seeing, but you're, you're, you're also already seeing the shrinking of cans. Correct. And the shrinking of boxes of cereal, for example. You know? We just talked about oh, that a lot, where there's all kinds of ways where it looks like you're buying the same thing, but, you know, now the we've seen it even with toilet paper. They made it a little bit more narrow. And they'll do anything they can to hide this right now because the consumer can't stand the increase. But there's a point at which all of that, Hocus pocus, trickery, marketing magic, and labeling magic—it goes away, and people are going to start realizing the situation that we're really in. And I think that the, the real danger then is if you don't act slowly and sustainably now, you end up at the end trying to act in massive panic when everybody else figures it out, and that's when shelves wipe out. We just had the little ice storm come through here. We got—I know you're going to laugh at me because you're up in Montana. We got three quarters of an inch. Of ice. But then we got an inch of snow on top of it. And then something that had never happens in Texas happened. It went down to like 15 degrees for four days in a row. And everything was frozen solid. The grocery stores were literally wiped out. A couple of them weren't because people waited so long they, they couldn't get to them. But as soon as everything melted and we had the Super Bowl parties going on and all, then they wiped out the grocery stores, which hadn't been resupplied for three or four days. And that is such a little, tiny thing. And I think if we get to a point where people start realizing that a loaf of bread will literally cost 25 cents more tomorrow and 50 cents more the next day, then everybody's going to start to move at the same time. And that's when we get into where we get bad names as survivalists and we get called hoarders. I don't consider myself a hoarder. A hoarder is the person that waits for the storm and then takes everything they can get at the expense of somebody else. Right now, everything is still available in abundance, and we take this time to put aside surplus when anybody can do it. And if you don't act now, you're going to get into a world of hurt 
when everybody tries to act at the same time. And you see little hints of what it looks like. The ammo shortage right after Barack Obama was elected, when people started stocking up on ammo, that took like six months to flesh itself out. And, and people began to think it was never going to fix itself ever. Law enforcement organizations were unable to get ammunition uh, during that period of time. That was one commodity for one thing just because one segment of society decided to act. And that's why I've always been big about the sense of urgency needs to be today and slow and steady because you, it's really hard to go from zero to a year's supply tomorrow. It's really hard to go from having no way to purify water to having water storage plus filtration plus purification plus rain, rain catchment for continuation and all of that and try to do that you know from zero to 60 overnight. These things take time, but if you're sitting on the, on the wayside right now and you're still waiting for when do I do this? Yesterday. You know, I mean, right. that's sorry to get a little keyed up here, but you know, you're you're rekindling a lot of this stuff in me that I talk about all the time, and I want people, and I know you're going to share this with some of you know your members that may not be aware of our show, to take what you're saying very seriously, because as you live in the world of looking at all these these legal moves every day, I live in the world of preparedness every day, and I can tell you that there are lots of us out there, and not all of us are hiding, but. And we're all about community here. We really are. And I, I want to help my community. I want to help my neighbors. But I've talked to some of my neighbors around here, and they're knuckleheads, and they're not going to do anything. And if, if, the, if, if the shit hits the fan, I'll do what I can to help you. But what I put aside is first for myself and my family. And then whatever else we have, we'll help other people with. And that's a harsh reality that is going to hit some people dead square in the face if they don't wake up to this now. Yeah, it's absolutely correct, and, and you know, it's and it's kind of um, it's kind of sad, but you know, it used to be in this country it was just a matter of course to set aside preserves and food for the winter. And my grandparents did that, and they grew their own gardens. They all canned. It was just you know something you did. It wasn't a lifestyle you adopt. You know, a survivalist lifestyle. That's something that's kind of you know cutting edge or out out there. It was just what everyone did. But it's because we've gotten away from that core responsibility and participation. In providing for our own food, that we are in the situation we are now. There's just you know a bunch of dummies that go down to Walmart once a week at the most, and so that's that's our that's our food pantry is Walmart. And like you said, when when there's a sudden demand, it's going to be cleaned out and it won't be there for you. And if you have a, a collapse in your economy, and you might even, you might even have food available, but if you don't if you don't have the money to buy it because your money's now worthless, and it costs you you know. Entire months worth of worth of pay to buy, you know, one dinner, then then you won't be able to buy it. And that's what's happening now in the Middle East. A lot of the big um, reason for the, the sudden upsurge and rebellion there against the government is because the average uh, Middle Easterner, the average Arab, is now having a hard time feeding his family because they can't absorb the the increased prices in grain. And so, you know, we can for now at least, as long as our currency lasts, but. It, we can wind up in the same position they're in. We can wind up with, you know, the inability to pay for grain, even if it's available. So we, you should not take it for granted. You should, you should go out and, you know, even if you looked at it as, as just personal security in case of a job loss. You know, if you've got three months worth of canned food and six months worth of beans and rice, that's a huge, um, you know, security blanket for your family, and you feel much, much more secure when you open up that cupboard and look at all those cans. You know, it'll feel a lot better. So if you you know lose your job and, and you're out of work for a few months or even a year, you'll you'll be able to take care of your family. It's critical. Yeah, we have a philosophy around here that 
the most probable disaster that you'll ever experience in your life will affect you personally. And as you move out in the broader scope of, of disaster size, the least likely it is that it'll happen to you, but the greater the impact. So it's kind of an inverse relationship. The most likely thing that everybody will deal with sooner or later, you're going to have somebody you love die. And that is a tragedy, and that is a disaster for you. And if it's a child, it may mean that you need to go three or four months without working to put your life back together. And that is something that is, it happens to somebody every single day. And as we go out to the neighborhood disasters, you know, it doesn't have as big of an impact as something like a Katrina, but it happens somewhere every day. And the bigger we go out in scope, the greater the impact on the nation as a whole, but the probability goes down. That doesn't mean we don't prepare for it, but it means when we're getting started, the person that tunes into this show for the first time, or maybe they got involved with Oath Keepers and they, they were more on the political bent, they didn't really know about the preparedness side of things, and they first start hearing about it and they say, man, this is too overwhelming, I can't do a year, needs to understand that losing a job, losing a loved one, getting a divorce, uh, having your car, having a car wreck, and yeah, your insurance pays for the car, but maybe you're injured and you can't work, and this, all of these things that are more likely to happen to you as an individual, you prepare for those first, that starts leading you toward independence, and like you said, you open that cabinet and you realize, oh, I'm good for three or four weeks here instead of a day, and that feels great. For the first time in, in people's lives, when they start doing this, they start to realize that they have their own answer. And then they become empowered, and then they become emboldened, and taking these steps that you're talking about becomes a lot more doable. That's, that's been our focus you know, pretty much from day one, is the individual's empowerment by understanding if you can take care of yourself through the little disaster, all you have to do is keep doing the same thing and repeating it over and over, just like shampoo, wash, rinse, repeat. Keep doing it over and over again, and next thing you know, you have sustainability for a month. You do that again, now it's two months. You do that again, it's four. You do it again, it's eight. You do that again, it's a year and a half. And it's over. Exactly. it seems right. overnight, even though it is kind of a long journey. Right. And, and, you know, even if your income is really, really limited, like I say, you know, a 50-pound bag of rice right now at Costco, I believe it was like 18 bucks. And so that's nothing. And then a big bag of beans, too. And then it'll at least last you, you know, a few weeks. Start there and keep building up. Big thing with that stuff is, like, we really advise people take that stuff, repackage it into uh, five-gallon buckets using mylar and oxygen absorbers, not just for longevity, but for rodents. If you store rice in a bag anywhere where a rodent or a weevil or anything like that can get to it, uh, you turn it to rely on it someday, and it's not available. Um, using things like dry ice as part of your storage planning. So you take the, the, the beans or the rice, you put them into the bucket, uh, you set a piece of dry ice on top of it, the CO2 uh, go down in there and purge the bucket out. And that prevents anything that would be in there that would need oxygen from uh, coming to life like weevils that sometimes you'll find in rice. So a guy's got his rice stored up, he finally goes to rely on it, and it's all been eaten up by weevils. And these are things that people need to think about beyond just grabbing it and stuffing it somewhere. Right. Well, another option is is, is your Mormon cannery. A Mormon Mormon church in um, every major city has a cannery where you can go in. You don't have to be a member of the church. You can just go in. And they're more than happy to let you come in, make an appointment, and use their canning facility. And you can you know buy from them bulk wheat, rice, and beans, and powdered milk and, and sugar and things like that. And you can can them right there in number ten cans. And they, they use the oxygen absorbers in each can. Absolutely, a really, you know, really super cheap way to go because they don't you know, they charge cost. You know, so you can buy a big bag of wheat for for next to nothing, 
and can it right there. You're good to go, you know. And I want to make sure people know, and we've talked about this before, you do not have to be a member of their church to take advantage of a lot of the canneries. Um, they believe in that's part of their community service as a whole, uh, is to make that available and to teach as many people as they can to do what, what they do uh, in their faith. And I think it's a huge uh, resource and advantage for people to take, uh, to take advantage of. I, I do want to kind of wrap things up now, Stuart. I, I'm really surprised at how much we talked about individual preparedness today, and I'm, I'm really happy about that. Uh, but I want to bring the focus back to Oath Keepers a bit for you here at the end. I want you to let people know how they can get involved um, and, and what it means to be an Oath Keeper. Well, in the, main, the main mission, as I said earlier, is reaching out to all those who have sworn the oath. And so when it comes to the current serving, um, anyone can go. And we have, we have free uh, PDF downloads you can get off of our website for push cards, which are you know, the size of a business card, or brochures, a trifold brochure that you can print up um, and, and go hand out to your local police department, uh, to any, any military police or firefighters, and just, just hand them out to them. And so into our website, and our website has testimonials from other police and military and, and firefighters that, you know, will, will help them understand their obligations. So that's one thing they can do. Now, if someone wants to join, they're more than welcome to, and, and folks don't have to be prior service because they can join as an associate member, even if they've never served in any, any capacity. So that's, that certainly helps, our, helps us. You know, we need, obviously, you know, the more members we have, the more resources we have to go out and do things we do. But I want people to think that you have to join Oath Keepers to help spread the message. You can certainly just, you know, go hand out materials um, and volunteer. And we have a, a free forum for each state. So folks can go on our site and sign up in our forum system in their state, even if they don't join. But if they want to join, then we also have a national members-only forum that they can take part in. But the big point is, is to get the message out there. And in current serving there listening, their, their obligation is that they have to go read the Constitution, understand what it says, and then think in advance about likely or possible orders they could be given that are, that are, would be in violation of their oath and prepare themselves, you know, mentally and spiritually to say no and, and to stand down. Uh, I, and I'd like to add something to that. Uh, having served in the military myself, I'm going to try to talk directly to some of you guys out there that I know are currently serving at home and abroad, and you're listening today, and you're a certain type of person in the military. In the military, there's a definite command structure, and there's sergeants and, and lieutenants and captains and officers and, and non-commissioned officers. But within every unit, within every group of soldiers, whether it be an entire platoon or just a squad, uh, and I know this is true across all the branches of service as well, whether we're talking about airmen or seamen uh, or Marines. There are individual leaders that are leaders that have nothing to do with their rank. When they speak, they're listened to, they're heard. And you're the type of person that needs to share what Oath Keepers is all about with your fellow soldiers. You need to do it smart, and you need to respect your command structure uh, and things like that. But when you think about it, what you're, what you're, you're sharing with other people is things that they should know anyway. Uh, every person next to you wearing that uniform, just like you are, put their hand up and made the same pledge you do. And I think it's a good idea for them to know uh, what they pledge to do. And uh, I'm speaking directly to all of you, and you know who you are if you're that person. You know if you're that person that when you speak, even someone that technically outranks you, when you're speaking you know, off-duty or, or having a beer at the NCO club or whatever it is, you're listened to. You need to share this organization because if the people that want to oppress the American people realize that they don't have you to use like a mindless gun, if they realize that you're going to think for yourselves, a lot of the things they want to do, they'll never even try. 
but it's up to you. You've got to stand up and you've got to take what you've already promised to do as being serious uh, and being something you're willing to risk your life to do because that's what we've all agreed to do when we take that oath. Yeah, what you, what you said is um, confirmed by, uh, on our website, there's a, a video interview with Sergeant May of the uh, Utah National Guard, and he's a good example of that. He's a sergeant um, who was deployed to Katrina and along with the rest of his unit, and when they heard about the, the gun disarmament being done in New Orleans, um, a lot of the other guys came to him, including some officers, came to him and said, Sergeant May, you know, will you be the one to go to, to go to the commander? Because he had been an outspoken um, advocate for the Constitution in many of their discussions, and so he was that guy that they, you know, they went to, and, and he went and talked to the commander, um, and told the commander that, look, if we're giving these, we've heard these these things are happening. If you give us these orders, we're not going to do it. And then that went up chain of command and came back, and the message to them was, as well, don't don't worry, you won't be asked to do that. So they did, did like a preemptive refusal. And really, it was because of that one person, Sergeant May, who was such an outspoken advocate for the Constitution, and in particular, Second Amendment. They'd, they'd have many discussions. So he's really, you know, the, the like you said earlier, one small change, one small, one person can make a huge difference. And so he was that difference in his unit. And so what we need to do is create more Sergeant Mays throughout the military. Outstanding, Stuart, and... Uh... I really want to thank you for being on the show with us today. Uh, it's been really enlightening. I knew we had a lot in common. I didn't realize how much. And um, I'll give you, you know, kind of your chance for final thoughts here. And I'll also say to you that if you ever want to come back on this show and speak to my audience about anything, you have an open invitation, uh, 24-7, 365. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. And uh, um, there's really, you know... I want folks to really focus on the essentials. Focus on what the founders gave us. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Don't fall for you know, a military coup or any other you know, quick fix. What we have to do is resurrect the republic that was already given to us. And with that, folks, uh, I can't really add very much to that. It's all about putting, putting things back the way they were, I think, is uh, what we're both advocating here. And that all starts with you. And your individual action, your individual thoughts, and your individual preparedness. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Stuart Rhodes, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Revolution is you. 